1: welcome to Star Wars Action News. This is Marjorie. And this is Arnie. And have you read Kenobi by John Jackson Miller yet? I really, really hope so for your sake, because I enjoyed the hell out of that book. We've got John Jackson Miller joining us later this show. We've also got Steve the Ginger Prince and Jonathan. Everybody starts J, Ginger, John, <laughs> Jonathan. All we need is John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name's my name too, so we kind of have that. It is, yeah. But... First off, store report, and Yakface has reported there is a new mini polybagged Lego set showing up at Toys R Us. It is the Umbrian MHC, $3.99. I'm thinking it's from the Clone Wars, as I don't know what an Umbrian MHC is. It's a little too close to umbilical. Maybe a little bit. And also, Marjorie and I were at a Walmart the other day, and we found the wonderful Chase Biker Scout variant... Of card with no biker scout. (laughs) Yeah, just card back hanging on the peg. You did find the biker scout. He was hidden behind stuff. It was like two yards away. I don't know if somebody picked it up and set it down elsewhere or if it just had some momentum when it left the card. But yeah, it was a card laying there. And the stories of these bubbles falling off continue. I received my shipment finally, finally from ToysRUs.com. And I kid you not... Many of the bubbles had been put back on the cards crookedly with packing tape. I'm going to be returning those to my local Toys R Us for a refund. That's awesome, because they use packing tape instead of scotch tape. Or even masking tape or duct tape. Well, I think packing tape was what they had as they were the shipping department at Toys R Us. I kind of wonder what's going through their mind of, oh, I need to ship this. Oh, it just fell all apart. Oh, here's some packing tape. Yeah, because... Honestly, you could even give that as a gift to somebody. Hi, here's your gift that we already opened. I don't even think Toys for Tots would take it as a donation because Toys for Tots says new unopened. There is no way this appears to be new nor unopened. That is correct. But here with what he's finding on the pegs is Jonathan.
2: Hello and welcome back to On The Pegs, where we discuss what's being found in stores and online. I'm Jonathan, and unfortunately I've not been able to hit the stores as frequently as you've come to expect on this segment. Recently I suffered a bit of a toy-related injury. My two boys left a bin of Legos at the top of our basement stairs. I didn't see them, and to make a long story short, I'm on crutches for the foreseeable future. But that's okay, because we have a lot of online news. This week's Sideshow put their premium format Commander Cody up for pre-order. Like their previous releases, this is an excellent piece, just crammed full of detail. If you buy the Sideshow exclusive version, you get interchangeable heads with both the Phase 1 and Phase 2 helmets. It's expected to be released May of 2014, and it's going to cost $380. But... Like with other sideshow pieces, if you start those flex payments now, it makes it a little bit more manageable. Gentle Giant also announced two new pre-orders this week. The first is another addition in their vintage 12-inch line, the Hoth Rebel Soldier from 1980. Now, I have to say that I loved this figure when I was a child. It was the first troop builder that the Rebels had. Up till then, while you could get plenty of stormtroopers and death squad commanders, the Rebels had no figures that you could troop build with. To go beyond that, the Rebel Soldier was the figure that I used as Luke Skywalker before we got the Hoth Luke figure. This figure is going to be released third quarter of 2014 for the cost of $85. Gentle Giant also put up for pre-order their Monument Scale Life-Size Vintage Stormtrooper. This is one of those pieces that I would love to have. I'm not entirely sure what I would do with it. And at $2,300, I'm not sure that my wife would let it in the house. It stands six feet tall is due to be released the third quarter of 2014, and, hey, it qualifies for free shipping. Again, it's a really neat piece. It was shown at San Diego Comic-Con, and I think everybody who saw it wanted it, but at that size and that price, unfortunately, I'm going to have to pass. Our friends over at Jedi Temple Archives have reported that the Kmart-exclusive Imperial Scanning Crew and Ewok Assault Catapult will be arriving in October and we'll list for fifteen ninety nine dollars for the Imperials and twenty ninety nine dollars for the Ewoks. Guess it's soon going to be time for me to start stalking Kmart again. And speaking of Hasbro, I just received my TIE Interceptor from Amazon.com. And while I'll give you a more in-depth review a little bit later, I do have to say that apparently Amazon has learned from its mistakes with the Slave 1 shipping. And this one was packed in its white mailer box in a larger box surrounded by air cushions so it came to me in pristine condition if you're like me and can't get to the stores as much as you'd like go check out star wars action news sponsor brian's toys where they have a huge selection of both new and vintage items and remember when checking out please note that you heard about them on star wars action news Now, just because my mobility is limited doesn't mean that I didn't go check out a few stores. First off this week, I actually went to Petco and saw some of their new line of Star Wars items for dogs and cats. If you've got a dog or a cat, go check it out because they've really got some nice items in their collection. I was able to pick up a Darth Vader squeaky toy for our Portuguese water dog and a C-3PO squeaky toy for our Shih Tzu. Now, Neptune loves Darth Vader and has been trotting around with him in his mouth, pretty much constantly since we got him, but Pipsqueak took one look at C-3PO and decided that she did not like that droid. Within 5 minutes she had the stitching open, all the stuffing pulled out, and the squeaker destroyed. Now when I bought these, Petco was running a special and I was able to get a set of Yoda ears for each of the dogs. Also this week, I've gotten a report that some new figures are being found at Five Below stores. A listener reported that they found more of the Malgus Wave and, surprise, surprise, some of the last of the Clone Wars figures. This was the Wave that had the impossible-to-find Commander Fox and Captain Rex in his hybrid Phase 1, Phase 2 armor. So if you have a Five Below in your area, I always recommend checking it out. I also managed to get myself over to Target this week because I had heard that they had had a host of new items. In their dollar spot, they had candy flashlights, they had school sets, they had... Bags, quite a nice variety of different little tchotchkes that the kids seem to love. Lastly, at Target, I was able to pick up the new LEGO mini set, the Umbaran MHC. This is from the Umbara arc of Clone Wars season four, one of probably the better arcs of that year. It's a 49-piece mini set. It was only about four dollars and. if you've listened to my segment before, you know that I really like these for bringing to places to keep kids occupied when you don't want them to use an iPod or an iPad or something else electronic. And most of the other big box retailers, I've been hearing reports that Black Series seems to be everywhere. The 6-inch figures and the 3 and 3 quarter inch figures have been seen at both Toys R Us and Target, and the 3 and 3 quarter inch figures have also been seen at Walmart. As I said earlier, I received the new vintage collection Tie Interceptor from Amazon.com. But before I discuss this, I just have to lock the door here. The Tie Interceptor is one of those vehicles that I've always really loved. It's probably been one of my favorite vehicles from the original trilogy. But the new Tie Interceptor is actually the fourth release in the modern line that we've gotten. Essentially, the wings are very similar to their 1983 counterpart. Instead of stickers, they've got slightly molded solar panels, and the ball cockpit itself has been updated. But the first time the TIE Interceptor was re-released was in 2001 in the Power of the Jedi line. At that time, it was a Toys R Us exclusive, came with a pilot, and listed at $29.99. That first release had the same basic mold as the vintage one without the electronics. Then we had to wait until 2007 and the 30th Anniversary Collection, where we got the TIE Elite Interceptor, that was inspired by the Dark Horse Comics Rogue Squadron series. This also was a Toys R Us exclusive, came with a 181st Squadron pilot, and retailed for $34.99. Two years later, we got the TIE Interceptor again, in the Legacy Collection, and again it was a Toys R Us exclusive. This time it jumped up to $49.99 and came with a pilot figure. It had an updated cockpit and probably the best paint application to date. The latest incarnation of the TIE Interceptor is, as I said, an Amazon exclusive and lists for $49.99 as well, but this time, there's no pilot. What really stands out to me, though, is the box that it comes in. Again, as we've seen throughout the vintage collection, these vintage-inspired boxes just look phenomenal. So, that's it for me this week. Until next time, keep searching the pegs.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. And joining us now is John Jackson Miller, author of the new Star Wars book, Kenobi. Hello, sir.
3: Hey, how you doing?
1: Good, thanks. Now, it's been a while since you've been on our show, and so I wanted to get your reaction. I'm asking everybody as they come on, what were your thoughts when you found out they were making Episode (laughs) 7?
3: Well, i tell you, it was was a shock. I I saw it on the Internet at the same time a a friend of mine was leaving for a a nine-month tour in Afghanistan. Uh, he's in the army and I was more excited or rather more you know I was not the calm cool and collected one he was of course he's about to go over and uh, be, be in Afghanistan for nine months but here I am, excitable and and crazy, going wow! This is amazing. This is something. He, he's back now, and he's okay. Uh, but but yeah, <laughs> it was absolutely uh, you know a surprise. And you know you you sit there imagining all the possibilities and all the things that can happen and all the all the things that never could happen before that might happen now. So yeah, it, it, it was it really was a moment to fire up the imagination.
1: And what are your thoughts on J.J. Abrams and his previous work?
3: Well, I uh I enjoyed the Star Trek movies. Uh you know, I I was never, you know, a regular watcher of uh you know, he the TV stuff that he did. Uh but uh you know certainly the, certainly the first Star Trek movie, you know, I as a Star Trek fan, I, I uh, as well as a Star Wars fan, uh you know, I really dug what uh, what he had done there. So yeah, I mean it's it, 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 yeah, a project like this, uh, you know, I'm certain that they've, uh, you know, as they as they say in uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark that they've got, you know, the top men on the project, uh and women, uh and uh, and they're going to make sure that uh, it's going to be uh you know, as good as it can possibly be.
1: And as somebody who is uh, working on the Star Trek Titan line, yeah. I think you're familiar with people who cross the bridge between Star Trek and Star Wars.
3: Yeah, I was joking that, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, what's the line in Star Trek? Only Nixon can go to China. Well, only guys named J.J. can uh, do both Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's such a rule uh, out there, but... You know, I have not perceived there to be any you know real barrier in fandom between these particular you know programs in many years. It was different in a world uh, you know in which they were both competing for uh, space with each other at conventions and on the comics racks and on the bookshelf racks uh, alone. But I mean, once we've got a world in which. You know, all of us are are fighting against Twilight fans. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, or you know, whatever else is you know happens to be uh, you know taking up space at San Diego Comic Con. I think that uh, you know there's certainly a, a, a strength in numbers uh, for us guys in 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 space. Well,
1: let's take a look here at your second Star Wars novel, mm-hmm. uh, Kenobi. Yeah. Given that this is your second Star Wars book, and as am I correct, this is your second prose novel
3: well the Star Wars Lost Tribe of the Sith was an anthology that put together uh eight short stories that that I had done for, as promotional pieces for the internet and then I added a uh, novella later on and you know that followed Knight errant, which really was the first you know novel that I had done so uh, yeah it it not, not, uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith. It all does hang together, and I kind of pretend like it's a novel because it was something that you could read start to finish and it you know it's the same length uh with uh with the same themes and everything throughout uh but yeah I would say I guess Kenobi is certainly the it's certainly the first hardcover book I've done, and uh you know it's uh it's it's been a real special experience
1: so did you have any lessons learned from your previous writing that you took into Kenobi, especially, again, with the Star Wars prose, or anything you tried to do different?
3: Yeah, I, the interesting thing about this book is that I had actually started thinking about it seven years ago uh, as a possible graphic novel. Uh, I had been uh, working with my editor, uh, Jeremy Barlow, at Dark Horse at the time, Uh, on some possible graphic novel ideas. And, you know, we'd kicked around Boba Fett, uh, various other possible characters for these things, and uh, we had hit upon the notion of, of, you know, it'd be cool to do a Western uh, kind of story with Star Wars. And in particular, uh, you know, I started to pursue the idea of doing a, uh, you know, Western-style story with Obi-Wan Kenobi about his first few months on Tatooine, uh, and, you know, where he really is sort of the stranger, you know, coming to the village, uh, the man with, uh, you know, no name, no past, uh, as far as anybody knows, but of course he's, he's got, he's, hi- he's hiding quite a lot. Uh, and it was something where I worked on it quite a lot back then, and I ended up shelving the project for about five years because it just was not going to fit into a comic book format. Uh, and I, I realized that it was really better suited for prose. And, you know, lo and behold, we, we get to the, uh, you know, fall of, uh, 2012, uh, and I get the green light from Del Rey to do the project as a novel. And, uh, you know, the rest is, is history. And I, I would observe that, yeah, there, are, there are a number of things that, you know, if I had tried to do it, you know, much earlier, I would not have done it exactly the same way because I, I'm, probably would not have had uh, you know, as much you know, training or seasoning as a writer uh, that I've had in the last five or six years. Uh, what we do with Kenobi is something kind of special because we have most of the story told from the point of view of other characters uh, other than Obi-Wan. Uh, you know, because he's a stranger in town, I thought it would be interesting to see what they thought of him, uh, and you know, he would be the mystery that they would be trying to figure out uh while all along, of course, the reader is aware of what Obi Wan has been through and what he's hiding, uh, and so there would be some suspense that we would work on there. And, you know, I did use that idea for the later novel, but, you know, I also worked in some ideas that, that came from uh the book publishing staff and from uh from Lucasfilm you know one of them uh is the is the these uh meditations that uh Obi Wan does throughout the book where he you know, in between every few chapters he uh tries to speak to Qui-Gon uh about what's going on and you know that really gives you a, a chance to hear what he really thinks about everything that's happening and everything that has happened. Uh and, you know, it's it's uh, uh it 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 forms a, a sort of an emotional through line uh, throughout the whole book. Uh and I probably wouldn't have done something like that in the graphic novel. Uh so yeah, I mean, it, it, there there have been some changes, but I, I, I do think that, you know, it, it, the time was right to do this book now.
1: So quite a lot of information in what you just said. I kind of want to go through it a little bit. Now, mm-hmm. you said you were challenged to do Star Wars as a Western. Yeah, how did how did that go down? Are you a fan of westerns?
3: Oh yeah, I mean I I love all you know old you know classic cinema and and you know there are a number of archetypical western movies that uh, Star Wars already draws on. Certainly, when we're looking at the early parts of Star Wars Episode Four, uh, you know you have that whole frontier feeling and the you know wild western aspect of being out on the range and and you know, being in jeopardy to you know the forces out there either you know the the forces of nature or or the natives in the sense of you know the sand people uh so you know i certainly looked at you know, a number of different uh films that uh had inspired me uh in the past uh you know, the obvious one that people mention is uh Shane which was the the movie with Alan Ladd playing the gunfighter who tries to retire to uh, a quiet life as a farmer and of course finds that he cannot remain silent when things are going, uh, you know, bad things are being done around him. Uh, you know, then there, of course, there there, there are a number of other, uh, you know, movies uh, and novels. Uh, you know, I am a fan of the uh, the books by uh, Larry McMurtry uh, and, and, and films. He, you know, did Lonesome Dove and uh, that's, you know, one of the hallmarks of the work that he does is you don't just see the, uh, the lives of the you know the active characters, the, the characters in combat, the, you know the Texas Rangers. Uh, you see lives of the ordinary individual people, the the cooks and and in the camp and that sort of thing. Uh, what their, what their lives are like, uh, you know the local merchants. Uh, you get a, you know, a, an environment, you get a, you get a uh, you know, a feeling of uh, what it's like to live there. And that really was something I tried to go for with Kenobi, is to give this world some personality. Uh, and it already had a lot of personality, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, when you're reading this book, you really feel like you're living on Tatooine with these people.
1: Oh, and I think you definitely accomplished that. I think that, Uh, You have very strong characterizations of these original people. And, yeah, the way that you incorporate so much of what we know of Tatooine, like basically anything I could think of with Tatooine fits its way in organically, from a Sarlacc to a Bantha to a moisture evaporator.
3: Yeah, and, you know, my thinking was that Obi-Wan, even though he has survival skills, every planet is different. Uh, Every desert planet is different. Uh, and, you know, some things he's going to know and some things he's not. And that's where it really comes in handy to have a local guide to, you know, teach him the ropes.
1: And given that you wrote the original outline for this so long ago, how did this come back up? You said that you were talking after Knight Errant. Was this something that you pitched after Knight Errant, or had you just brought it up?
3: I mentioned it while, while Knight Errant was awaiting release. I had mentioned it to Shelly Shapiro at that point. She wasn't sure at that time that uh, it would be something that we could take to Lucasfilm uh, because uh, you have to remember for a number of years in there they were still talking about the the, the live action TV show uh, that was going to take place during the dark times and we did not know you know how much of you know that territory there after episode three we were going to be able to move into. But you know, I when I brought it up again here at Star Wars Celebration last year, uh, you know, I think a number of things had uh, had probably changed at that point. I know that you know the live action series was no longer being discussed much, and also it I think I I made it clear that what I was doing was going to have pretty minimal impact in terms of the number of days it was going to take out of Obi Wan's life. The things that have been established for him in this period. You know, all of them had been collected in the Life and Legend of Obi Wan Kenobi at that time. Uh, that was the Scholastic book that uh, Ryder Wyndham did, and you know, I was able to just look at this thing and say, you know, this this story, uh, while it will be an important story, it's also going to be relatively small in scope. It's certainly small in geographical scope because we never leave Tatooine, but it it, it will be something that, in terms of, you know, the timeline. It's not going to have a sprawl to it, you know it, and in fact, the novel takes place over I think I counted up ten different days over the course of maybe a month. I never actually put a, a hard number on it, but you know that that fits very comfortably into that earliest period that had been open, that had been written about uh you know and I, as I've joked, you know the the almost the entire novel fits in one sentence on page 110 of The Life and Legend of Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I wasn't going to be knocking over any furniture by writing this story in this time frame, and, you know, I'm glad that they felt the same way.
1: Now, with Westerns, you have the classic trope of cowboys and Indians, and as I'm reading this book, I'm realizing that you've kind of reestablished that dynamic, and in the role of the Native Americans, you have the Tuscan Raiders,
3: yeah, I I I, you know, I I tried to escape to the extent that I could the more familiar you know tropes. Uh, one of the things, for example, is you know you always have in a lot of these kinds of stories, you know the the, the settlers put into uh, direct opposition with the native culture, and you know of course in many cases the native culture is and, and certainly certainly in, in you know in, in the case of our country, uh, you know the native culture is the indigenous culture. Uh, is is one that uh, you know, has often been wronged by the settlers, uh, you know, and you know, there's definitely a a difference in sort of the you know, the innate nobility of uh, of the two groups. Uh, with the Tuscans, I wanted to present them as being you know alien to a great degree. I didn't want them to seem noble. I wanted them to to be driven by certain. Things in their belief system, in their mythology, in their culture, in their way of seeing Tatooine, and in their way of seeing uh, the settlers on Tatooine. I wanted them to, you know, have their their particular aims and goals. I tried, though, not to make them seem to be any way, in any way, shape, or form, you know, morally superior to the people who are also still trying to just get by on this planet. Uh, really, the the enemy on this planet. is... Is the planet? It's Tatooine. It's this is a place that's trying to kill you uh, <laughs> if you're if you're there for any point in time, whether it's the sandstorms or the sarlaccs or the suns. This planet wants you dead, and in particular, you know the you know the Tuscans have taken it upon themselves, you know, feeling as they do that they're under a uh, under a curse, uh, you know, a connection to the land. Their battle every day is just to stay alive. Um, and they absolutely do not care what happens to the settlers. If they have to kill one settler, if they have to kill all the settlers, you know that's fine by them. Uh, and I use the phrase "settlers" again because even though certainly there have been people on Tatooine for many generations, uh, and you know going all the way back to the Knights of the Old Republic times, uh, because we you know we saw ta- we saw Tatooine in the Coder game. Even though there have been you know attempts to tame this frontier all this time. I don't think anybody's ever succeeded. I think that you know, it is wrong to say that, that you know, people have broken this planet to the will of humanity or any of the other species that have come around. I believe that you know we've had a lot of cases where most of the people who, are, or, who have been here a long time you know, just survive by the skin of their teeth. And you know, a lot of people leave and a lot of people die. And then more people show up. Uh, so, you know, I really do think that the other people that are out there are are very much settlers in this, uh, in this, you know, description.
1: And with your work of the Tuscans and natives versus settlers there, I thought you did a nice job of really providing a human side, for lack of a better term, a three-dimensional portrayal of the Sand People. Yeah. And I also liked how much you incorporated from other EU sources and pulled it all together into a cohesive yeah. thing. Be it how Anakin's slaughter of the Tuscans in Episode Two yeah. had a ripple effect to bringing in references to Sherrod Het from some of yeah. the comics.
3: Oh yeah, uh, I think it was necessary. I mean, it was all out there. It all had to be acknowledged. You know, Outlander was a was an important source. Uh, you know, some of the other source books that had been out there were important sources. Uh, and I got to take on a number of issues that I, I felt were. You know, as I study them, were interesting. One of them is the fact that you know this this is a place, or this, this is a group of people that seems to have an awful lot of Jedi that come to live with them, and you know, of course, it might only be I think three or four. I mean, you know, we we have the Hats, and then of course we've got uh, we've got, I think Tahiri has Force powers that lives with them for a while. Uh, yeah, there there are a number of these characters, and I you know wanted to address this this question of well, is there something that is endemic to the Tuscan culture that causes them to seek these, you know, outside shaman figures, these wizardly figures to you know join them or uh lead them or you know or whatever. Uh, and yeah, you know, I also wanted to be careful to make sure that you know people understood that what I was establishing might only be for this one fragmented group of Tuscans. Uh, you know, I, I see the groups as being very fragmented all across the, you know, the, the planet. And so, you know, I, I think I had a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, your, your local Tuscan mileage may vary kind of thing going all the time <laughs> in case somebody wants to come along and tell a different kind of story. But, you know, here, you know, the mythology that I established for this group I think really did tie in, you know, especially, you know, I, I do encourage readers once they've, they've read the book once. Uh, to go back and reread the Tuscan mythology, uh, thinking about the events of episode three and realizing that there's kind of an echo there that even Ben sort of recognizes later in the book.
1: And speaking of Ben, I thought you also did a great job nailing Kenobi's sly wit and his mannerisms, his talking in parables, even going so far as to spell out speciality versus specialty. Yeah. <laughs>
3: We slipped that one through. We slipped that one through. That was that you know, the, that was flagged by the proofreaders, but I said no, let's let's keep it.
1: <laughs> I really was getting a very Ewan McGregor voice off of this character. Was that your intent when you were writing yeah, it? Yeah.
3: It it really was. And, you know, it's it's obviously so very soon after the end of Star Wars episode three. And you know, the prologue even you know, takes place during Star Wars episode three. So I, I I that was really the intention there. Uh and I felt that as far as his dry wit well we got that in the movies and so that sort of gave me a template for it the situations that we put him into in this book a number of them are very awkward on purpose I decided to go at you know some of what are his strengths you know his 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 coolness under you know fire in strange situations and so I put him in a lot of situations where Uh, you know, you as the reader are going to be going, oh gosh, this is really, really awkward for him to be in because I know who he is and I know that he doesn't want to be found out. I know that he, you know, I know that he would find it really awkward to call this, you know, Annalene woman Annie after, you know, Anakin Skywalker was, was known as Annie. I, and certainly as the romance stuff gets going, again, we as the readers know what his secret role is and so, I you know I wanted to put him a little bit off guard in a number of places but I did not want it to ever devolve into slapstick because of course it it can be a lot of fun putting the you know Jedi into strange situations that uh he'll feel awkward in but uh, what do we know about Obi-Wan he's cool he's cool he's cool under pressure he's he he, he can handle a lot, a lot of these things and some situations where you know I think in the first draft I was I was playing them more for fun as I rewrote it, he, he you know he laughs things off, uh, or chuckles along with uh, with the situation, or he's just sort of amused by what's going on. He doesn't fall prey to theatrics.
1: Now I want to give the listeners a warning. I want to ask a couple of uh, really detailed spoiler questions here about the novel that are going to give away some major plot points. So if you okay. haven't read and if you don't want to be spoiled, fast forward for a little bit. Okay. Now, one portion of the book that I did go back and reread, cause I, I wanted to try to catch it, John. Yeah, yeah. You revealed a Yark to be a woman. Yeah. And of course, I had gone through this whole book thinking of her yeah. as a male. Yeah. I went back to check your use of pronouns. I yeah. thought for sure at some point you had to have said him, cause in my mind, I was just yeah. so visually a him. So how tricky was that to write? Yeah, there's,
3: there's not one in there, is there? Nope, um, I couldn't find it. Yeah. In fact, there was there was a, six, a section where I think uh, you know we had, a proofreader had accidentally put one in in re- rephrasing something, and you know it, once everybody realized it, it was immediately right back out. You know, I wanted to play with your expectations to a degree. You know, I knew that we were taking on some common Western tropes here, but you know the, the Tuscans are not a a native tribe of, of any you know earthly species. The Tuscans do not have the same. Uh, you know, gender roles. There are, are, you know, very few gender roles in Star Wars that are are specifically outlined. There were were some things that already existed in the continuity about the Tuscans and the division of responsibilities between uh, males and females. But, you know, this is again the Tuscans. We don't even really know what species they are. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, but but I, I wanted to take this opportunity, uh, to actually. Tie Yark more closely uh, to Anlene, uh, and you know, so that we would be able to see that what they are doing is sort of similar. They they both are responsible for uh, you know their own children and also for a larger group of people at the same time. And of course, interestingly, this is the same thing that is the case with both Oren and uh, Obi-Wan as well. I mean, they both are responsible, or at least they, they both are guardians or parents, uh, you know, for a, a, a particular child or children, uh, and also they both feel like they are responsible for a much larger group of people out there. And, of course, in Obi-Wan's case, he's responsible for a huge group of people, or at least that's what he feels. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 it's just they all respond to these responsibilities differently. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get the reader thinking by the end of it, uh, that, you know, these are, these are four different parents in a sense that, uh, have, uh, are both parents of, you know, children of their own and also parents of a, a larger people. And we're seeing, you know, how they each respond to, uh, to their, uh, duties.
1: And also speaking about, your original characters, given what we know by the end of the book about Oren and what he's really capable of when he's desperate and dresses yeah. up like a Tuscan raider to get hold out farmers on board, yeah, it isn't said blatantly in the book, but I wanted to ask you flat out, did Oren kill Danner?
3: No, I think that that's I did imply a number of things that uh, he was probably responsible for. I mean the, the very obvious one is that he was responsible for what happened to you know old man Bezard in the beginning. He was one of the early victims of uh Oren's actions and that that caused him to move out with his kids and then get killed uh you know in the first chapter of the book. But I, it, I what I wanted to put across I think really with Oren and Danner is that this is one of those relationships, one of those friendships where one guy has all the good ideas and the other guy is the one that is willing to, you know, put the elbow grease into you're going forward with them and take advantage of them and do something with them. And I wanted to establish that Danner didn't mind that because he was a good friend. But Annalene was always sort of keeping an eye, you know, cocked open about it and going like, well, you know, maybe this guy has been taking advantage of us forever and ever and ever. And, of course, later on, that's, that's what we find. Uh, you know, no, I, 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 I really did not mean to to go so far, though, as to suggest that he was responsible for killing him. That was the Tuscans. That needs to be the Tuscans as well, because that gives Jabe uh, that mission, that, that parallel, you know, hatred of the Tuscans, uh, to go out and do what he did in the whole massacre scene. But, you know, it, certainly... Oren has been going bad for a long time, um, and I think that you know, if the reader puts together all of the events and rebuilds the own, you know, I had a chronology for him when I started, and you know, I present it, you know, obviously in a disjointed manner. You know, a few years here, a few years here. I mean, his son dies, his wife leaves, all of these things happen, and you know, each time one of these things happen, he starts compromising more in a different way. I, I think probably the earliest thing that happens is Danner dies, then Oren's wife leaves, then Orin's son dies. But we begin to question each time how much Oren is at fault for each one of these things. And we don't go into the son's death very much at all, and that was again on purpose. I, I wanted to leave sort of the you know, the the question out there uh, of was he killed because uh he was taken along on one of these things like Jabe was on one of these sorties to go after the Tuscans. I, on purpose, did not establish what that was. Uh, but, uh, anyway, know, that, that's a very good question. And, um, you know, I, I hope I haven't uh, spoiled too much mystery by answering it.
1: Nope, nope. That's why I asked, is I wanted to yeah. check.
3: Yeah, he, he he's not that bad. Uh, Oren has not killed anyone uh, to this point. He's just... On that edge, and Obi Wan believes, and this is important, I think, Obi Wan believes that, you know, he ought to have a chance to turn around, to turn back. A, a lot of what is going on with Oren, a- and to a lesser degree with Jabe, is Obi Wan starting to work out his own feelings of guilt with regard to Anakin and not being able to see what Anakin was doing to go wrong.
1: And speaking of Obi-Wan, I really do like those meditations you wrote again. I think you captured the voice so well. I'm glad you shared the story about how those came to be.
3: Yeah, they, they were, Jennifer Heddle was the, was the person who suggested them at Lucasfilm.
1: And one of the things, though, that I kind of suspected, because from other EU sources, I, I believe the Episode 3 novelization, we know that, with Yoda present, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon had communicated bi-directionally. And with all the meditations yep. being seemingly one way, I almost yep. thought like the coda of the novel might be Qui-Gon's reply. Is that something you played with at all, or was there a reason?
3: No, that was that was already in the continuity. It was either established, I can't remember whether it was in Dark Lord or whether it was... Written by Ryder in the leg- uh, life and life and legend, I think it might have been in that epilogue in Dark Lord where it was established that Qui Gon had never responded when Obi Wan was trying to talk to him until Obi Wan learns about Darth Vader and the fact that Anakin lives, and that's when uh, that's when Qui Gon responds to him. I think you know it's an anchorhead or wherever it is that Obi Wan sees the news and they have a conversation. It's either there or it's it's later when uh Obi Wan you know, finds out about what happened to the sand people in uh, in episode two and Anakin's role in it, which we imply here but we don't show. Uh him beginning to put the pieces together about that. I'm pretty sure though it was in Dark Lord and that is outside the bounds of the timeline in the story. So no, instead of being a conversation, this became a meditation. It became a, solilo- a bunch of soliloquies, and it's really not important. Whether, uh, to my mind, it's not important whether uh, we hear from Qui Gon. You know, this is not Mork Culling Orson. Uh, where, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not. This is not it, it's not more Calling Orson where he's trying to really get Qui Gon's opinion. He's trying to work out these things in his own mind.
1: Yeah, and I was actually thinking of it more as because at the end of the book Obi-Wan is once again left completely alone not oh, yeah. that it was ne- not that a response was necessary for the impact yeah. those had in the novel
3: I think it's very important that he ends the novel alone because that's what he's going to be I mean that that's what he's going to be and obviously he does achieve this feat of talking to Qui-Gon later on but I don't think that they're on chat every night uh I th- I re- no I really don't. I think I think that that in order for him to achieve the wisdom that he needs to and for for him to come to terms with everything that's happened. Uh yeah, you know, this is something he's got to work out on his own.
1: My final question comes from the author's note at the end of the book. It mentions that you live in a house filled with too many comic books and Yes. As we're a podcast for Star Wars collectors of all types, books, comics, toys, what do you collect?
3: Well, uh, I I have every comic book that I uh, I ever bought, uh, pretty much, uh, going back to age six, and of course I I worked for Comics Buyers Guide for many years, and so I got a lot of comics that way. And then my wife was the the manager of a comic shop when I met her, and so you know she she brought to the relationship all the DC comics I didn't have. Uh, so, I mean, that was the <laughs> A <rate>. perfect match. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah, so, so we had all those, uh, you know, I, I collect, uh, you know, I, I was a gamer, collect a lot of old games, uh, re- edited game magazines for a while, so I have a lot of, a lot of games from those two, uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of that, uh, you know, I'm. Interested in you know I have a lot of old old video game systems i uh, you know they obviously they pile up after a while, but uh that was another thing that I collected for a long time and and I still have all of that uh yeah you know, I think probably the most curious or weirdest thing that I've been collecting and it's and it's what I've done lately just to sort of you know give myself something that is is uh you know untouched by the rest of my work life. I'm into you know classic television memorabilia uh and one of the things that I've I've begun collecting I've I've got uh probably over a 1000 TV guides right now <laughs> and these are fun to read cuz you can go back and read you know the first review when you know a show that ended up being super popular came out you know and and you get to read the review saying oh this thing won't last <laughs> uh or 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 you know you get to read them talking in such wonderful terms about a show that you know, you know got canceled after 3 weeks and of course then you can go if you find the issue from 3 weeks later uh and and you know they they go oh gosh what were we thinking uh, i i just enjoy the heck out of flipping through some of that old stuff um and it doesn't con- it does not connect to my to my working life in any way you know on the comic side where i i am uh, still active in comics as sort of more of a hobby that would be with my my comicron.com website uh, where, you know, I have continued the work that I started, uh, years ago when I was the editor of the, the trade magazine for the comics industry. You know, I've been developing this database with, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, all the comic book sales figures that have, you know, ever been released publicly. You know, I continue to do estimates for those every month. And, you know, I've been working backwards at the same time to get them all the way back 70s, 60s, you know, before that if possible. Uh, and even though I don't have it on all online yet it is known to be the world's largest collection of these figures uh, you know that uh, that are going to be available for public consumption
1: Wow that's very cool so what is it if you can share anything you're working on now I know Knight Errant finished after the third arc
3: yeah uh, Star Wars what you've seen is is what's announced uh, or what's 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 announced is what you've seen uh, I am. Uh, I have uh, a a couple of plates spinning uh, and a couple of other projects that have been announced. Uh, Announced already is uh, the Star Trek Titan story you mentioned, uh, which is Star Trek Titan Absent Enemies. Uh, This is a novella that's going to be released as an e-book, and of course it's set uh, in the future after Star Trek Nemesis, where uh, Captain Will Riker has his... Own starship, uh, the Titan. Uh, Deanna Troy, who is now his wife, is uh, on board that ship. Also, sort of his, you know, his uh, his foil or sidekick, in that is Tuvok, who of course was our security officer over on Voyager. Um, you know, he he got back from the Delta Quadrant and immediately went right back out uh, with Titan. And they have just such a fun, you know, dynamic that that pair. Uh, you know, it's it's a very Kirk Spock kind of thing going on between them. Uh, because you know Riker really is you know sort of the you know the the id side of of you know, of Kirk, and you know uh, Tuvok is is absolutely no nonsense you know the way that uh, Spock uh, was in the early days. Uh, so so that's a lot of fun. This particular story is lighter hearted in nature than some of the others, and it is in fact uh, the sequel uh, to a uh, Star Trek Next Generation episode. Uh, that I was always fond of, but I always thought that there was room for another story to be told after it. Uh, I can't get into which one it is yet, but uh, you know that one. That one is written, and hopefully we'll have a date, uh, a release date on that soon.
1: Does it happen to be a season one episode?
3: No, it is not. Okay. Uh, so you've got. I've narrowed down your problem by by sixteen uh, percent. There.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, there's that alien invasion hook from season 1 that I you know, uh, somebody well, had to pick know, up on someday. other pe-
3: other people have picked up on some of this stuff. That's okay. one of the things that's been interesting is you know going through and seeing how you know I knew some of it but exactly you know what's considered canon and what's been done uh you know they have their own uh it's like traveling in a foreign country. Uh, they they <laughs> they have their own instead of Wikipedia there's Memory Alpha which is for the TV shows and the movies and then there's Memory Beta which is for the novels. And so there's there's that sort of uh, that database out there uh, that uh, that the fans keep too. Uh, I also have a, uh, a Conan story that is showing up in November in the uh, sixth issue of Robert E. Howard's Savage Sword. Uh, it's a short story, but it's a fun little project. I, I you know I wanted to show folks that I'm not you know even though I didn't have any comics on this from the Star Wars line this year because I was doing mostly prose uh you know, I, I am still talking with uh with Dark Horse on various things and you know had a chance to get this uh this story out there. Uh and this is fun because uh it is the, the first time I've done anything with Philip Tan, who was the artist on one of my uh storylines in Iron Man, which is like nine years ago. Uh and we had not worked together on anything until now. So this is this is really cool to get to do that and yes it's it's one more stamp on my passport i've <laughs> i've now been to hyboria <laughs> uh so so yeah we we've got that too um and and of course i i have some of my personal projects that i've been working on i've got a i've got a major series that you know i haven't taken out from under wraps yet and there is also the one that uh, was published this earlier this year uh from uh, 47 north was the publisher uh called overdraft uh, the subtitle is the Orion offensive for that first book but that is uh that is uh, a science fiction story set in the 22nd century a, a a series of my own creation where i uh i came got to come up with my own rules for space travel and interstellar travel and commerce and that sort of thing and you know it's uh you know in a very very quick nutshell i mean it's it's sort of aliens and armored mercenaries take on wall street uh <laughs> it is you know it's a, it's about a, it's about a conniving stockbroker and of course I write conniving characters uh, for fun a lot. Uh it's about a conniving stockbroker who accidentally through his uh shady exploits he accidentally bankrupts his interstellar expedition and the mercenaries with the expedition decide that instead of going into bankruptcy and going into uh unemployment they decide to return to the solar system grab this guy by the neck and haul him back out to the stellar frontier to get their money back uh one planet at a time uh one one dangerous galactic encounter at a time and so that that book is available as a ebook and uh, and also as a physical book from Amazon and it's going to start you know being available at other publishers uh as well or other other retailers very soon uh and we're getting an, an audiobook for that too and that's kind of cool that's going to be coming out in november but yeah it is it's a fun thing and there's also you know i already put online there's a there's a little 99 cent short story prequel that i had written uh that i got the rights back to and so that's also online on amazon uh just you know look for overdraft and you'll find that one as well uh and you know i plan to do more with that series and it's just a matter of finding the time
1: well, sir, thank you very much for joining us. I really enjoyed Kenobi. I love Knight Errant, and it seems like you bested yourself with Kenobi.
3: It's completely different, so you know I think that's what's fun about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I look forward to seeing what you do next, and I'm definitely going to be checking out Overdraft.
3: Okay, well, thank you.
1: Thanks to John Jackson Miller for coming on the show. Great guy, wonderful author, really enjoyed his stuff in comic form, and... When I read his first full novel, I read the Lost Tribe of the Sith stuff, but as e-books, so I didn't get the novel experience. But when I read his Knight Errant novel, I knew that his fun style was something really fitting of Star Wars, and I did go out and pick up his book Overdraft. It was available for the Kindle. I won't be reviewing it as it's not Star Wars, but I just enjoyed Kenobi so much, I want to read more of this guy's work for fun. And finally this week, looking at collecting, we have Steve, the Ginger Prince, coming to us from the UK.
4: Greetings, all. This is Steve, the Ginger Prince... And after all my gallivanting around this summer, I'm finally back in the UK. And I'm glad to be back, because as I lay around that pool in foreign climes, listening to Star Wars Action News, hearing about the debacle that was Slavegate, and the drama of figures falling off the new Black Series cards, I was jonesing to get on a proper toy run again. Yes, we tried to do toy runs on holiday, but all they seemed to have in Italian toy shops was stacks and stacks of old Lego. Which brings me nicely to our first target once we were back in Blighty. When they announced the LEGO Ewok Village earlier this year, the lovely Suzanne rubbed her hands together with glee, as it had a September release date, and she instantly earmarked it as her birthday gift. Well, it was actually available to LEGO VIP members halfway through August, and only became available to regular Joe Public on the 1st of September. So on the 1st of September we took a trip to the centre of Manchester, and our first stop was the LEGO store in the Arndale Centre. We were pleased to find that they did indeed have the Ewok village on sale, so at the price of £199.99, I bought it for Suzanne's birthday. Now, she isn't going to be allowed to have it until her birthday, but once it's hers, she has agreed to document its assembly in photos, and even record a little report on the experience for the show, which will be a nice treat. I've got to admit that I'm almost as excited as Suzanne for this set, Not only does it have a phenomenal 17 minifigures, but it looks like it's going to be the most playable Star Wars LEGO set yet. Suzanne has already cleared a space for it in her collection room, and it promises to be the centrepiece of her growing Ewok shrine. As if dropping a couple of ton on LEGO wasn't enough whilst we were there, I also bought the 2013 Star Wars LEGO Advent Calendar, at the price of £24.99. Now we've bought the Advent Calendars for the last two years, and I love them. Getting up every morning in December to a new LEGO build so beats a crappy bit of milk chocolate behind a door, and it's oh so much better for my ever-expanding waistline. I open days with an even number, and Suzanne gets odd days. The minifigures are always the best, and this year there looks to be a good selection, including a cute young Boba Fett, a gurning Geonosian warrior, and a particularly festive Django Fett. So, with a bill of nearly half a monkey, I thought it would be a good idea to sign up as a LEGO VIP member. This should prove a good ploy. LEGO is a strong franchise, and there are bound to be more Star Wars items that I want to buy in the future. We also collect the general minifigures, and Suzanne does the Harry Pooter sets, so it should come in handy. With this purchase, I got two free small LEGO baggies. One containing a VW camper van, and the other containing a Republic frigate, which was very nice of them. I also got enough points to get 10 quid off my next purchase, so I left the store with a giant bag and a grin on my face. Having spent so much money on my wife, it was time to give myself a treat. So my next stop was the bookstore Waterstones, as I wanted to see if I could pick up the Kenobi book. Brock's review of the John Jackson Miller novel was so good, it got me really excited to pick it up. Well, that and I've just read the Darth Plagueis book on holiday, and it's got me back into Star Wars novels again. I was disappointed not to be able to find Kenobi, but my frown turned into a smile when instead I was able to pick up How to Speak Droid with R2-D2. I'm sure you all know how big a fan of the artist Jake I am, and so this was a must for me. Jake himself showed me the book at Celebration Europe, but it was in German, and this was the first time that I'd seen it in English. It's very similar to his earlier How to Speak Wookiee book, but instead of accompanying every beautifully illustrated page, we get the book would be perfect for your little Padawans, as they would get tremendous fun out of the audio aspect of it, but it's definitely one for the big kids as well, and Jake has thrown in a lot of subtle humour in his art, like a glimpse of what a road trip with the Mon Calamari might be like, and a reveal that Luke Skywalker is actually a bit of a Banksy in his spare time. At £14.99, the books seem a little pricey, but there's obviously a premium for the sound device. And trust me, it's well worth it. A couple of other books caught my eye in Waterstones. The Star Wars Storyboards book that contains lush copies of prequel trilogy storyboards looks like it would be tremendous fun to pour through. And the surprise attack of Jamba the Puppet, which purports to be an origami Yoda book, also looks interesting, but they might have to wait for Christmas to be added to my collection. Away from books, it was time to answer a question that had been eating away at me for a couple of weeks. Had the Black Series landed in the UK? A quick trip to Forbidden Planet confirmed that this was indeed the case, and my wallet groaned in expectation. I had already made up my mind about the Black Series before stepping foot in the store. I like the look of the cardbacks. They're not my favourite cardback of all time, and not a patch on the vintage collection, but they're alright, and I'll be picking up those figures in the 3 and three-quarter inch line that are new, or that significantly improve on that which has gone before. I was ready to steer well clear of the 6-inch figures. That was until Star Wars Celebration Europe where I was bowled over by the exclusive Boba Fett with in Carbonite, which is a thing of absolute beauty. As a result, I'm now in on the 6-inch as well. I don't know to what extent yet, but I'm in. So, three and three quarter inch first, and I'm pleased to report that after a good deal of rummaging through stacked pegs of Wave 1 figures, there were no glue issues at all. Every bubble was attached to every card, and there were no signs of some of the horror stories that American Swanlings have been reporting. What I am disappointed to report is that this awful British trend of plastering big ugly stickers all over the back of cards is alive and well with the Black Series, and I'm afraid it's worse. On the figures that I bought, I tried, and couldn't peel the stickers off, like I usually do, and it actually started to rip the card back when I tried. I had the pick of all Wave 1, and chose only to go for two figures at the moment, the new Padme Amidala and the Cloud City Dining Room Darth Vader. Let's start with the Padme. This Geonosian Arena Padme was first released back in the Saga line. And whilst I loved the accessory of the broken pillar that came with that figure, I had big issues with it. Firstly, it was too tall for Padme. Secondly, it was too muscly for Padme. And thirdly, her boobs were too big. This new figure is a massive improvement, being much more well proportioned all around. Yes, the joints on the bare right arm are ugly, and yes, the joint between a cut-off white top and exposed midriff allows for a rather odd movement of a torso, but it's got great articulation generally. The real winner of this figure, though, is her back. Now I know that the slash marks made by the Nexu appeared and then disappeared during the last 20 minutes of Attack of the Clones, but I like that they actually showed a bit of blood in a Star Wars film. And they've captured this on the figure beautifully. I might actually display her arse forwards. It's that good. Why do I need another Vader? Well it's because I love him in this scene. The fact that Vader allows Han to take a pop at him with Boba Fett just told to stand in the corner shows what a badass he is in Empire. This figure is all about accessories. He's got a lightsaber, an exchangeable right hand with the blast bolt that hand fires and the resulting shower of sparks, and he's also got Han's broom-handled Mauser that he pinches out of his grasp using the Force. That's how I'm going to display him. Right arm outstretched with Han's weapon in his grasp. The figure itself isn't bad. His helmet's very shiny, the soft goods cape can be positioned so that it flows behind him, if you want to display him stomping down the corridor of the Executor. In fact, the only thing that disappoints is the metal chain of the cape, being done in soft goods and not plastic, and as a result, not sitting correctly on his breastplate on from the three and three quarter inch to the six inch, and I spent a good ten minutes dribbling over the boxes, before with a heavy heart deciding only to pick up two, partly because of the twenty one ninety nine price tag, and partly because of the ongoing battle with how much space there is left in my house. I bought the standout figure of the first wave, the Sandtrooper, and the X-Wing Luke. At the moment I'm thinking I'll be back for the rest, perhaps asking my family to pick them up for my birthday or for Christmas. I'd heard that the Sand Trooper was, all that girlfriend, And they're right, it's freaking sweet, better than the Boba Fett if that's at all possible. He comes with his backpack and three weapons, an E-11 blaster, which is what I'm displaying him with, plus a DLT-19 heavy blaster rifle and a T-21 light repeating blaster. He's as dirty as you like, with all sorts of sand stains on his armour, and the articulation is crazy, being more flexible than most yoga teachers I know. The Luke in X-Wing outfit looks great on the card, with the orange of his suit matching the orange piping on the box. But he looks just as good out of his cardboard prison. I'm going to display him with his beautifully detailed helmet on, without weapons. But if you want, you can have him holding either a pistol or a lightsaber. The only complaint that I have with him is his lightsaber. It's neither blue nor green, although I've no doubt it's supposed to be blue. It's instead a wishy-washy turquoise colour, which just doesn't cut it for me. Apart from that, this figure is lovely jubbly. And it's worth finding a display space for. Not being satisfied with armfuls of plastic, I decided that I couldn't leave Forbidden Planet without some silicon as well. I'm talking about the Death Star Ice Cube mould. Now I've bought all of the Star Wars Ice Cube trays so far, and I love making not just ice but also jellies and other confectionery treats with them, so I'm intrigued to see how this performs. What could be better than having the Death Star floating in my whiskey glass? You have to fill it only 80% full of water through a little hole in the top of the space station, as the expansion that happens as it goes through its state change would be too much if you filled it right to the top. Now before I leave you be, and whilst I'm on the topic of the Death Star, I also wanted to tell you about my new t-shirt. I bought it from a company that I've used on a number of occasions before, and who've got some sweet Star Wars tees amongst other movie based offerings. The company is Arcane Movie Teas, and you can order not just from the UK, from their website. The tee that I got most recently depicts the incomplete second death star, but it makes it up using dialogue from the film. It's really clever, and they've got others of these designs that they call typographic. They're all done with three colours or shades so that the design has got a 3D aspect to them. They look quality. The shirts vary in price, but are around the £20 mark. Alright, that's me spent, quite literally. I'll hand you back to your charming hosts, Arnie and Marjorie.
1: Thank you, Steve. Now, that is our show for this week. I do have a bit of a programming note. I mentioned last week that going to the ICE convention was a bit of a transformative experience for me as a collector, and I'm looking at some different things. We're going to be reducing the frequency of Star Wars action news, not because of anything other than I'm running out of hours in a day, and I want to spend a little bit more time on my collection Instead of just talking about a collection that is kind of piling up. I want to catalog it. I want to cull it a little bit. I want to clean it a little bit. I want to get things on display and organized. And also some other personal projects and some day job things have crept up. So we're going to be taking Star Wars Action News after eight years. Eight years. And this is our 405th episode. Yikes. For the time being, we're going to drop down to every other week. Now, this... May change in the future. I could see maybe when episode seven hits, we'll have to increase a little bit and there will be special episodes as collecting warrants it along the way. But our regular schedule is now going to be every other week instead of every week. And we hope our listeners understand and stick with us. I think it's going to be a great thing because I've been dying to get your collection in order and I can't wait
3: to get it started.
1: Yeah, that we spend a lot of time on the mic with the collection and Unfortunately, the realities of day life mean this is hours spent that we aren't spending displaying, cataloging, and organizing the collection. So hopefully it'll mean better content for you listeners and better collecting for all. So we will be back in two weeks, and we'll talk to you then.
0: Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at swactionnews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at swactionnews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook and Twitter. The links to our social media sites are at swactionnews.com. You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at swactionnews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that podcast at republicforces.com. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at swactionnews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. You can help support Star Wars Action News by making a donation using the Donate button at SWActionNews.com or by using affiliate links on the Star Wars Action News homepage when shopping online. Your support helps keep Star Wars Action News on the air. We also appreciate it if you would spread the word about Star Wars Action News. If you enjoyed the show, please post about Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes page is at SWActionNews.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is Segment Reporters Jerry, Brock, Jonathan, Nathan, and Steve Graphic Design by Chris Image Editing by Jay Podcast Enhancement by Andrew and Barrett, Associate Produced and Podcast Announcements by Brock Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, all rights reserved. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you.